You know, I was thinking, right, we speak to many fintech companies and there's one common theme they all have, which is... They're fintech. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would, I would say you've been in, you've been in fintech before it was fintech. All oh, right, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. We can tell by your grey hair. Um, what you can see of it. But obviously. what I was going to say is that there's one thing in common, which is funding, and we've never really spoke about the investment side of fintech. What? Who? 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 Who injects it? Yeah, who's right? behind the scenes? What's the kind of the, the deal behind the scenes? So, so why did we come here to St Paul's Cathedral? You're expecting divine intervention. These are very plush offices, right? It means that this is where the money. Oh, coming this is from. money. Money. Yes. Money and God. And I wonder. I wonder if they have an innovative name, like something that sounds very fintechy. I don't know. What's that? What's that TV? We program? can't have an acronym, so it can't be an acronym. It can't be an acronym, no, because there's too many three-letter acronyms around, aren't there? Like, There's too uh, many acronyms in payments. PIF and EPA, oh, FCA. All the regulators have got three-letter acronyms. God. Um, we are here yeah. at the KBW offices. KBW. What does that mean? Should we ask someone what, what that stands for? We're very fortunate. Yeah, whatever you want us. it to be. Whatever you, who's that? <laughs> Some, we've got a ghost in the room. <laughs> Come on, introduce yourself, please. Hi, I'm Sanjay Sakrani. I'm a senior fintech analyst at KBW, and I, uh, I'm on, in the equity research area. Could you just tell us what KBW is? Yeah, so KBW is a New York City-based uh, investment bank that focuses on financial services and fintech, and we've obviously expanded into Europe quite some time ago, and we're looking to do the same in fintech. We're looking to become bigger and broader in fintech. And what, what, what is it that drew you into the, the fintech space? Because, I mean, I, I've heard your background is like insurance and stuff like that. Why, why fintech? So, so KBW's background is more financial services and it's banking and insurance and traditional consumer finance. But I think as you've seen companies like Visa and MasterCard and then others come public, uh, there's definitely an interest from our investors community to have more insights into the technology that's enabling financial services. And a lot of our traditional players are sort of morphing into more of a technology role. And obviously, there's some technology players that are doing more traditional financial services. So I think there's a need for someone who can put that all together. And that's sort of where we're going. And then there was this whole quote recently from someone saying that the, the, the future of banking was technology. It wasn't banking anymore. It was, it was the, the technology behind it. Are you, are you an advocate of that? I think there's still a need for traditional financial services. Someone's got to do the dirty work. It's not very simple to do banking. Um, there's a lot of regulatory burden. There's a lot of cost. The banking system has a significant amount of consumers that are already engaging with them. So it's going to be very hard for a new player to get the scale that the banking system has. So there's still going to be a place for banks. Absolutely. They shouldn't be scared yet. I don't know that a technology company wants to become a bank at this point in time because the regulatory burden is pretty significant, as we've seen play out in the news for many years now. Well, we did see that with the likes of Apple when they were just on the edge and they just didn't want the regulation to come in. They didn't want it to apply to their Apple Pay solutions. And... uh, it's, it's unfortunate for them it now does under PSD2, but for a long time they, they, they managed to avoid having to be a regulated entity. And I think that that's pretty much correct. I mean, we saw how many times did Google trying to get into Google Pay. Um, it, I, I, it's not an obvious market for the technology providers, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think that, um, you know, the plumbing, so to speak, from a financial services standpoint, requires a great deal of work, a lot of approvals and such. 
a great deal of capital and the technology companies aren't set up for that. They're less capital intensive. They obviously don't have, um, you know, the certifications and such to be regular regulated entities, nor do they want to be. And so I, I just don't know that it's worth it at this point in time. So I'm really excited about having Sanjay here because actually this is rare. We have someone in investments yeah. that represents that community that understands fintech. It's unusual yeah. that mix. I mean, I've kind of been through this experience recently, uh, talking to a number of private equity funds. And what was amazing was the lack of knowledge that they had in fintech. And, um, you know, their views on what they think is real value compared to the real deal. I mean, I don't know, how, how did you get about, the, you know, the, the specialism and the expertise that you have in fintech? I would honestly say it's quite rare. I know there's many gurus out there, but actually when you lift the lid, I've seen difference. So, I mean, I've been doing this for 18 years now, and I have to tell you, in my profession, it's getting harder and harder to see, like, long-tenured people doing this type of stuff. My perspective also started with traditional financial services and then moved towards technology as Visa and MasterCard went public. And then, obviously, the financial technology revolution or evolution, however you want to define it, occurred. So I think understanding both sides of the spectrum is quite important. And I think when you look at how it's set up on the street, my competitors, in some cases, it's the financial guy just covering it. In some cases, in most cases, it's the technology guy covering the space. And I think that something gets lost when you don't understand the financial side of the equation in fintech. And are you, have you got a team around you that, that you're imparting your knowledge <clears throat> down to so that there's a wider... Yeah knowledge base here yeah i mean we're four other people on my team and we're trying to go pretty deep and far and we just hired a new person in europe to help us broaden out our coverage in europe as well i cover a couple of the larger names in europe today as uh, i mentioned before i spent some time in china recently i spent a little bit more time in china last year I spend time in India, and I think the idea is to understand how payments is a global phenomenon, not just a local one. And so you're seeing a lot of new players come in from all sorts of places, like Adyen, whom we cover here, is a big player in the United States. Alipay is a big player in Europe and the United States. They're, they're obviously expanding their acceptance, and it's important to understand the globality of all of this, and that's what we're trying to achieve. And, I mean, it is frustrating my background as a lawyer is is the way in which countries are continuing to try and rebuild their borders, which makes it much more difficult to get global payment solutions. Yep. The technology is ubiquitous, but the laws that we have country to country can make it really, really difficult to migrate programs. Uh, and to be fair, the schemes have been pretty global all this time, but they also have their borders and so in my new role as a CEO of a payments company, I'm, I'm suddenly seeing these borders coming up. What, what is your perception on, on, on those sort of borders and how does that affect your ability to invest? I mean, slowly you're seeing those borders come break down. I'd say if you look at what's happening broadly outside of some of the emerging markets far east, you're seeing some of the emerging payments in those markets proliferate in the developed world. So Alipay, WeChat Pay, Paytm has ambitions to sort of go beyond India. And so those guys are able to sort of expand into these markets and follow their consumers over, just like you know the developed market consumers have with Visa and MasterCard. 
I think there's complexities in each market. Uh, a lot of it's focused on economic incentives. And that either makes it very costly or not very costly to enter those markets. So it, there's definitely challenges. I'm not sure it's necessarily the borders per se. It's scale and it's economic incentives that might allow for or not allow for proliferation. From the portfolio of stuff I've seen KBW mm-hmm. be involved in, you, you have some very local businesses like a Metro Bank, which is <coughs> clearly just in the UK market. And right. And on the other side, you have the schemes like Visa MasterCard, which are global. Well, banking, I think, in many many cases is local, right? Because you have to have the local licenses in order to operate. And obviously, the branch in and of itself is very costly to develop. So when you have a brand and a branch-based banking system, you know, you want to have a measured sort of investment and perspective there. When you have technology companies and technology enablers, it's less capital intensive. Obviously, when you're online, it's easier from a customer acquisition and cost standpoint. So you're more able to sort of spread your wings a little bit. So what you've seen, for example, in the United States is many of the credit card companies I covered since the financial crisis actually have developed very significant online banking platforms. That didn't exist as in its current shape and form pre-Great Recession. And so that's been enabled not only through, obviously, the governmental assistance and technology enablement, but it's also been, you know, consumer habits are are evolving and shifting. And that's allowed for those companies to really develop their um, deposit infrastructures. And uh, we we heard Suresh there dying in the corner. Um, but. Mm But I, I'm, I'm stuck in this regulated world. Suresh out there in the tech world with his company, he, he can go anywhere. Suresh, it's totally unfair. Well, isn't it like many things? I mean, if you look at a technology company, right, they don't touch the money, right? They, they generally are the system of record. They're providing a service. Uh, and when it comes to money, you're going to be bound by jurisdiction. And I think that we... I mean, it will be interesting to what your thoughts are on crypto, but I don't see many of those things changing. As you as you mentioned earlier, Robert, the schemes are more open to it, but I actually think there's so many countries that have a protection racket around protecting their banks that I do not see something that would operate on a global level. And does that mean that a technology company can get a much quicker, bigger valuation because it's got much more of scope for a global solution, or, or do you see that there are some, some key triggers that, that could help regulated entities Yeah, high valuation? I, yeah, I would say like from an investor community standpoint, investors tend to give higher valuations to less capital intensive businesses, those that don't take a lot of credit risk because there's a lot more volatility that's introduced from a cyclical standpoint. And so... From my standpoint, the way we've looked at it, and I cover two different disparate spaces in many ways that are related. So I cover credit card companies and I cover payments companies. And it's interesting, in the United States at least, what you're seeing is a complete sort of bifurcation in the way investors look at one space versus the other. In the consumer finance credit card space, people are worried that there's an imminent recession because we're so late cycle. And people have sold those companies down significantly to you know, trough-level multiples, historically. In the payment space, up until a month ago, we were basically blue sky. 
and the multiples were at record highs. They've come off a little bit, but they're still trading very close to their <coughs> average historical PE multiples and valuation What's the levels? highest you've seen in the market, just generally? <clears throat> in terms of multiples? Yes. So, I mean, some of our names that are more recent, that recently went public, were trading in excess of 100 times PE. Now, you know, they're also growing in excess of 40% on the top line and obviously more on the bottom line. So you can't really look at PE because they're early stage in terms of their growth cycle. If you look on average where payment stakes stocks have traded, um, you're probably talking mid, you know, I would say 20 to 30 times is sort of the range and the mid 20s is the average. And if you flip that to your other side, to your credit side, yeah, those are about trough. Well, <laughs> trough is like one and six. Two X. No, I wouldn't say one and two X. I would say six to seven times. Yeah, six to eight is but the range, quite, and we're probably averaging seven. But there's a big gap. There's a the huge three. gap. It's a historically high gap uh, or wide gap. You know, it's something that perplexes us, to be honest with you, because it seems like we're living in two different worlds. How important are the revenues? I mean, look, we, we've seen company, you know, we can name a few, but we won't. There are massive companies doing really, really well. Massive valuations, not making any revenue. We almost come across clients where they're actually making revenue, but there's no noise. You know, their valuations are quite low. And then you've got the ones that aren't. I mean, I'm just wondering from your perspective, yeah. is revenue important? What, what is... Absolutely. Revenue growth is probably one of the most important metrics in terms of your multiple. So it may not be that you earn a lot of money, but if you have very strong revenue growth, you have a really high multiple, provided you can convince the market that you're not buying that revenue growth, right? That you can at some point scale expenses back and widen out that margin. I mean, I think a perfect example of that are some of the largest technology companies in the United States that have, have demonstrated that. And let's dive into the bit of confusion. Um, Robert, you, you go won't first. Know this. Let me uh, let me jump in head first. Oh, interesting. So this is a left field one for you. I'm sure no one's ever asked you this before. But what are the best buzzwords to use in a pitch to get a high valuation? Well, we know a few people in this space, don't we? <laughs> We've seen a few uh, unusual valuations, should we say? But what sort of things are people using to try and get their valuations up? In fintech, I would say it's disruption and disruptive technologies. It's being leveraged to secular tailwinds. What on earth does that well, mean? Can you and, and I will explain it. And third, I think, has been regulatory arbitrage. And then the fourth is recurring revenues. Okay. So I definitely think those are sort of four major points that people make to really make their models look really good. The secular tailwind piece is valid in some cases. So for Visa and MasterCard, it was that 85% of the world's consumer transactions or, uh, or volume-based transactions are done with paper today. And so over time, that's going to convert over to electronic. And so that's a secular tailwind. So I think that those are convincing arguments. Some fintechs have made a secular point on being disruptive to the financial system. And as we talked about earlier, I think that's very difficult to do. I have an idea for what you should do in, you know, in your meetings. You should play word bingo, right? <laughs> and you should have all of these words in there. And I'm, I'm surprised you haven't put in there next generation, 
The other AI. one that I thought AI, machine learning, blockchain. You know, yeah, the crypto one. I thought that would have been, you know, we'd using this amazing blockchain algorithm ledger. that people aren't using those. It's not reverses easy. the gravitational pull of the earth. And <laughs> so, so I think that's going one step further and actually convincing the uh, technology people that they actually have the tech stack or the technical expertise to differentiate themselves. But I think what we were talking about is more at an investment at an investor level how an investor would decide whether or not they're going to invest in the stock based on the fundamental financials, right? Right. Because there's like a little bit of a difference in that. So there'll be the technology expert for the portfolio manager that probably needs to know all the technical specifications. But then the portfolio manager wants to know, are they going to hit their revenues? Are they recurring? How fast are they going to grow? Ah, okay. This is interesting. So the profile of the people investing in fintech, is it changing? I definitely think it's changing. Early on, you had a little bit more of business services and financial services type investors investing in the space. Uh, more recently, you've seen technology investors come in. And that's been driven by a couple of things. One is some of the larger technology companies have been facing their own problems. You mentioned GDPR. That's been a big inhibitor for some of the big technology companies' models. The second is industry classification changes for the U.S. markets, which actually pushed some of the big technology names into other categories outside of technology, into areas like communications, and then made the payments names and the broader fintech space a more prominent part of technology. So what you've seen is the technology investors are actually now, you know, really zeroing in and focusing on the space. And obviously there's a little bit of a learning curve because in some in some cases there is a financial aspect to the stories. And even for, you know, a company like Visa and MasterCard, their volumes are predicated on what spending and broader trends at the banks are predisposed to. And are you seeing trends from investment coming from countries like we have seen a lot of interest from China. You said you spent a lot of time in China. Mm -hmm. I know that we've had some conversations yeah. in our daily business where there seems to be money flowing from China to invest in strategic companies. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, definitely across the world, companies are investing in payments. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I think payments is a global market. And so... Everyone wants a slice of it because there's optionality from their own business model standpoint. But I think that, you know, some of the challenges that we've had to deal with, you know, in some of the markets that you mentioned is politically, there have been some barriers put in place on both sides. And then, yeah, we've seen a lot more pickup in it from areas such as the Middle East, Australia, obviously Singapore is a big investor in the emerging fintech space. So you know, it's a broad-based interest in the markets because of the secular tailwind. Ah. Of course. And, 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 and uh, so have you, have you seen a change over recent years in that, in that market? Was it originally lots and lots of just U.S. investors coming through you and now you've and maybe a push from Middle East and, and now we're seeing more Asia? Or Yeah, I mean, I spend time in Asia marketing. I've spent time in Middle East marketing just this year. Obviously, I spent a lot of time in Europe across the continent marketing. So all of the various countries in Europe uh, are big investors in the payment space, as, you know, because I talk to a lot of the big portfolio managers. And so 
Yeah, I think it's, it's a pretty significant increase in terms of interest, and it's pretty diverse in terms of the interest level. I'm just, I'm just curious, in terms of the different regions, in terms of these investors, mm-hmm. do they look for different things? And I'm going to be a bit stereotypical and say, you know, if, they're, if it's an American investor, they want to invest in a big brand, they want to, even if it's a small company, it's like, what's the marketing around it, where maybe someone from China is looking at the technology, they want to know the nuts and bolts. What are, would you say there's individual hotspots based on what region they come from? I think the closer you are to the market, the more myopic you are to everything that's sort of going around it. As you go further away from it, you're looking at the more broader big picture trends like the secular tailwinds. And so, you know, in the United States, we're talking about stuff like the single payment button and tokenization and contactless cards, which to you, at least on the contactless cards, you're like contactless cards are so yesterday, right? And so... We've got our contactless rings. Yeah, and you've got contactless (laughs) rings, right? And so... You know, there's lots of differences across the markets, and obviously the sound bites are very different across each of these markets, and so we get relevant questions for those particular markets. So, diving in again, I, th- I guess we can't go through any, uh, and, we're, and this we know, we know this is going to go out after a number of Brexit votes. But what what has been the impact of a Brexit mm-hmm. on UK businesses being invested in? Is it is it is it putting investors off? I actually think it's probably helping payment stocks in the U.S., right? Because... Is that because the pound's so cheap? Everything is cheap. (laughs) uh, Well, so it helps from a currency translation standpoint, Right. right? So that helps. The second is, I think investors are a little bit more hesitant to invest in this local market today. So they're looking for other markets where there's more defensiveness. And so I think, you know, the payment space generally in the United States is more defensive in that regard. Not only as it, re- as it relates to the UK economy, even the US economy, and maybe we'll get to it a little bit later, but the payment, part of the reason you've seen this big deviation in the multiples is, you know, you have less volatility in earnings. People still believe in the growth and you can still get pretty decent earnings and momentum because you not only have revenue growth potential, maybe albeit at a, at a lower rate, but you have a strong amount of capital generation and then operating leverage as well. If I'm a new startup and I'm thinking I want to, you know, I want to eventually get private equity funding, should I say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be headquartered in London. Maybe I should do something yep. in Paris, Germany, you know. I think you have to plan for the worst and hope for the best. And so one of our companies um, actually has a, had a banking license that had operated its cross-continental Europe business from uh, in the UK. And yesterday they mentioned to us that they've set up a separate license outside in the Netherlands. And so many of our companies are actively getting in front of what might be a hard exit. And I think anyone and everyone should plan for that. Fair enough. Suresh, dive back in. Okay, so what we've got here, let's have a look. Ah, okay, so what is the number one piece of advice you could give to a fintech looking for investment? And actually, I'm going to ask you two things in relation to that. One is, at what stage should they be talking to you? Do you guys kind of do like a speed dating in the early days and then say, look, that's one to watch and we should keep an eye on them? Or do you kind of say, don't talk to us until you're big enough? I mean, what's the the general view and what's the advice that you have for people looking for investment? I'm always open to meeting with companies just because I want to understand what's happening at the ground level, right? So from an equity research standpoint, 
you want to talk to everyone and anyone because it helps inform your opinion on the market. I will reserve the investment banking conversation to the investment bankers. There's just a big wall between us, unfortunately. And then as far as sort of what advice I would give a fintech, I would say fintechs really need to be clear about the problem they're solving. I think they shouldn't overstate the problems they're trying to solve. If they are exposed to traditional financial services, they should state the fact that that's part of an element of their model. I think the most successful businesses solve problems. And, you know, there are areas where online peer-to-peer lending worked and where it hasn't worked. And the most successful markets where it's worked are the markets where there's been a problem to solve. And what would you say is the most common mistakes that fintechs make when they're you know, looking for funding? Yeah, I would say, generally speaking, it would be a couple of things. One is a mischaracterization of their model, which may help in the beginning, but leaves an overhang in investors' minds, and I think it affects the valuations going forward. And the second to me is like messaging and providing targets that are reasonable, all right? A lot of companies provide very aggressive targets that they have to achieve, and then that leads them to then work backwards and underinvest in their companies and then puts them at a disadvantaged position and obviously affects revenue growth, which we were talking about before. So if you underinvest in your business because you provided aggressive earnings targets, it's going to catch up to your revenues at some point. When you're, you're looking at this situation, is there any sort of right match between investor and fintech? Do you, do you actually try to marry them up for a long-term relationship or you you looking for these quickie marriages and then out once they've got their passport? I don't think it helps us to not have a shared vision between the investor and the company Obvi- both, on both sides because if you make a mistake on either side, it's going to stay with you in terms of your reputation. So I think you always have to have a shared passion um, for the, that it's the right type of business and there has to be an understanding of the strategy uh, that you know makes sense for the investor time horizon uh, and the company. And um, you know, again, you want to not mischaracterize the business for both sides, um, and you want to make it very transparent to both sides. This is sort of how each side thinks, and that's how you marry them together. Have you have you had any ones that you got wrong? I mean, look, again, you know, we, we obviously have made mistakes in our calls, for sure. Um, have you missed any, like, you missed a chance to invest in Apple or something in the early days? Was there any big ones you thought, damn, we should have got that one? Um, I mean, I think if we look back, I don't, I don't want to name names no, specifically, no, 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 no. right? But I would say that there are mistakes we've made where we've underappreciated the credit the market would give the growth. I'd say the growth in and of itself, the margin capabilities of a company. So we've underestimated many things in the past. Sometimes we believe it's just a point in time too. So it could be that the market's giving a company more credit today that it may not give in the future, but obviously it just depends on your time horizon. And there have been instances where we've been wrong. And in those instances, it's pretty, It's for us, it's been a miscalculation of how strong the growth would be or how much margin expansion they were able to see in a very short period of time. But some of it has been driven also by like strategy changes that we just didn't envision. And on the other side of you, you've gone into ones where you you thought it was going to be great, but it actually turned out to be incredible. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's been uh, many of those as well on both sides, both consumer finance and payments, and definitely more on the payment side. I think in if you look back in time, Visa and MasterCard have been phenomenal stocks and have done well in excess of what we thought they would at the IPO. And I think a lot of it's been because the speed at which people are converting over to electronic payments forms has accelerated over that period of time since they've gone public. And the company management and the companies themselves have done a phenomenal job of evolving and investing in their business and opening up their network for more use cases. So if you look back in time when MasterCard went public, I mean, they were having a hard time securing investors because of a lot of the litigation overhang and such. And I think the investor community, including us, by the way, overestimated what those impacts would be. And, and in hindsight, you know, luckily we've been mainly positive on that. They've exceeded expectations. Yeah, completely exceeded expectations. And those are, you know, again, they're great examples of providing reasonable targets that they've been able to, on average and generally, beat. And so while investing significantly in new technology, um, and advancements in their own business models. Obviously, they have the benefit of scale. And I think scale is really important in payments. And you know, if you have that, um, it's definitely a huge edge. One of the experiences I've seen, and I would love to get your view on mm-hmm. that, is, is that companies or fintechs focus so much on the product and what they're doing and don't really worry about the management team. I mean, is one more important than the other? Do they go hand in hand? How do you look at these things? So it goes back to the example we were talking about before, which is someone's got to convey the story to the people that are going to give you the money, right? So absolutely, there has to be an ability to convey your edge from a technology standpoint. But you also have to speak the language of the investment community. And so you need strong people at the top that understand the technology aspect of it because it's a big part of the investment that you're making. They need to understand the the rationale because otherwise you might underinvest. But then beyond that, they have to be able to speak to investors that are trying to achieve their own specific goals. And so the best management teams have that balance between speaking the business part of it and then obviously also understanding the technology i have a curious scenario imagine you've got a management team that are absolutely amazing at running the business they're great at it they know what they're doing but they have no expertise or they're no good at managing investors what advice would you have for someone like that get a good public relations person <laughs> or investor relations person right like you need someone who can help coach you and be that intermediary and so, yeah, look, some of, the, some of the companies we follow have really, really strong investor relations department departments that help coach and um, inform their management team um, on how best to proceed. And I think, you know, those are sort of the best companies, to be honest with you. Makes sense. Robert? Let me dive in again. And... Um... Oh, this is one that's close to my heart, the, the area of DLT, blockchain and crypto. Are you seeing much in that? I mean, obviously, we had a lot of these ICOs, but they were all pretty much fads, I think, at the time. One was his, by the way. Shh, don't talk about the Robert coin again. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, do you see a future in proper regulated exchanges that are coming up in jurisdictions like Malta, jurisdictions like Zurich in Switzerland and Zurich like uh, Gibraltar, where you're getting 
proper security token offerings where they're, they're, they're going to create an, like an IPO. Do you, do you think that's anything KBW could ever move into themselves? So, I mean, again, we're focusing more on the payment side. There might be use cases outside of payments where there is a problem to solve with crypto and blockchain. I do believe there are. So I think KBW does have an opportunity to answer your question in those areas. In terms of payments, I actually see crypto probably not playing a big role just because, again, going back to there's no real problem to solve. I mean, more and more you're seeing local governments, for example, in the UK, come up with real-time payments technology or at least fostering an environment for that. So, you know, you could pretty much get a transaction done in real time, pretty cheap. And, and, and over time, I think that'll happen cross-border as well. The networks, obviously, today, Visa and MasterCard, provide pretty quick authentication, at least, of a transaction. So I just don't see how cryptocurrencies are going to play a big role in payments. The blockchain element of crypto could, but I think the technology has to get more robust and has to be done. Uh, we have to get to a point with the technology where it's cheaper to implement. And then you might see some of the traditional players adopt it. But you're not getting any company coming up to you at the moment saying, help us with our eyes. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Okay, well, that's, that's good. And, and when you talk about fintech, do you kind of put reg tech and everything under the same umbrella? No, I think fintech is very broad. Okay. At KBW, the way we look at fintech is, sure, I do the fintech part of consumer finance and payments and maybe to some extent business services and processing, but there's going to be insured tech, there's asset management tech, there's wealth management tech, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing those, those industries, but there's a tech piece to exchanges, right? And we have different analysts that cover those different verticals. And I think it's important to understand where technology intersects with that specific vertical. And mm -hmm. it would be unfair for me to cover that, you know, yeah. appropriately, because I don't have yeah. an expertise. So, so where, where do you see fintech kind of having the most impact? So I see fintech, as we see it, having the most impact in emerging markets. And there, the reason it's having such a significant impact is the financial services and banking system admittedly is a little bit behind. So it's kind of leapfrogging. Right? Yeah. In serving the mass market, I think examples are China and to some extent India, where you've seen third parties come in and engage with the mass market because they have a mechanism to do it through the phone. <coughs> you know, they're also getting into traditional financial services through payments um, and informing a view on the consumer with the data they get through payments and actually creating lending products. Um, so, you know, in our Western markets, developed markets, you know, we have credit bureaus, we have a lot more information to base a decision off on the traditional financial services side. In those markets, not so much. And so there you've seen fintech players come in and, and many of the players there think we're in you know, to use a baseball analogy, in the very, very early inning, someone said the first inning, of those disruptive technologies playing a bigger part, uh, technology players playing a bigger part here in the UK and broader Europe as a result of PSD2. So I think there's a long runway here. And I think over time, we're going to see that competitive slant come into the United States as well. And so I think there's, it, we're very early in this whole thing. 
and I've, I've got a question. You don't have to answer it, but do you see a bubble that could burst? Or I could word it differently, which is, if something, you know, if one fintech went under, do you think it, it could impact the wider market? No, I okay. don't. I think there's a real use for fintech companies. Some of the use case, some of the companies, the use cases, you know, are suspect, to be honest. Um, you know, and those generally, if you classify them, are, you know, companies that have been, that have, their business model is saying that they're disruptive, but there's really nothing to disrupt because, um, you know, there's no problem to solve. But there are big problems in terms of people are out there using paper and it's way more efficient to use electronic payment forms. And it's there's more utility in it because you get more information and you can get customized offers and experiences. And so I think it's very evident we engage with our phone quite a bit and we want that in level of engagement to be very robust and i think payments can help facilitate it i think other technology based forms can facilitate it and so i do believe that there's a tremendous opportunity and there's there's you know key players in the market that have very high valuations that are going to be much larger and that's the reason they have high, very high valuations and there's a tremendous opportunity for them to continue to grow and if somebody wanted to engage with your, your company, what stage should they be at and how, how should they go about it? They should... Any stage... I warn um, you, we've got almost seven or eight listeners to this. We might be in double digits by the end of this session. <laughs> I think we might get to 12 uh, after this I think one. so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they can they can call me up or... You um, may regret, you may yeah, definitely that, cut you know. That's, that's Sanjay, <laughs> by the way. Just, this is Sanjay Sanjay, <laughs> Sanjay at com. Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, that I have to, I think, make sure that uh, <laughs> I can disclose. Who, I, I, I have to get address. back to you on who to contact, but you, you can get in touch with you. Okay. And then they can, um, and then you can forward the reference to me. I think yeah. that's the best way. Of the 10 emails, it. you take five, I'll take five. Okay. And please yeah, yeah. just we'll, send them we'll, over. The and I'm, I'm, I promise I will look at them and get back to them as soon as possible. Well, I, I think it's been a great stuff. I really in, enjoyed um, it. In yeah, thank palace. you. Any last words, Sanjay? No, I'm really excited, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to your to your listeners, and uh, and I hope it was insightful. No, it was great. And can I say, on behalf of me and uh, Suresh, what a great event you you did recently. All right, great. That was the first thank one you. as well, right? It was our first one, and uh, it came together very quickly. Do so you want to say a little bit about what it was and what the intention of it was? Yeah, I mean, it was the first innovations in financial services conference and i think the idea is that there's so much happening in the european and uk market that we wanted to bring all the key stakeholders together it was the companies the public investment community the analysts and also the private equity and venture capital investment community and we wanted to have a forum for everyone to engage with each other and learn about what's happening and i think it was quite successful and we hope to do it again so if somebody wants to come to the next one, what do they, how do they... Yeah, go? so like, I think it's TBD in terms of when and where we do the next London, one. I think it'd probably be in London. Okay. It's just a matter of or when Brexit. it would happen. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we have to see how all that plays out. But I think, you know, we intend to have another one, hopefully. And we'd love for everyone to join. And again, please, if you're interested reach out to these guys and they'll give me your contact information and I'll have that stored away and 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 we'll we'll engage with you. 
Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, you heard it first here. There'll be another right, one right. next year. And thank you very much, Sam. You got it. Thank All right, you. cool. That's a wrap. Thank you. <laughs>